Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We here are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I would like to thank you very much for being here. Please do like, comment, subscribe, share. Uh, that all helps a great deal, uh, especially if you're on the YouTube side of things. That helps a lot. Uh, if you're on the Apple, if you're doing this through Apple Podcasts, please give a star rating and a written review if at all possible. Uh, if not, I get it. Just give me a star rating. And I don't ask for five stars. Everybody asks for five stars. I prefer to be a bit more honest about this. If you think this is a five-star show, God bless you. I appreciate it and thank you. The only thing I ask for is not a one-star because I know this is better than a one-star show. I That much I know. So thank you very much for all of that. We uh, I, I've mentioned this before and I'm going to mention it again here as we start December. Had a pretty big spike through no, uh, the month of November in terms of overall listenership. So to all of you newer listeners, I thank you very much for being here. Welcome to anyone who's been here for a lot longer. Be nice to the new people. <laughs> and I thank you all for being here for a long period of time as well. Uh, just sincerely, thank you all. Uh, so please, we're trying to continue that growth through December. So try to close out 2021 strong. Uh, on the agenda this evening, last night UFC on ESPN 31. Uh, pretty good card, actually, all things considered, so we'll go over that. And, this coming week, UFC 269, the big pay-per-view, UFC's last pay-per-view event of the year, not the last total event, there's one more, I think, after that, but, uh, the last pay-per-view event for 2021, so we'll have a full preview of that, not a bad card on paper, uh, yeah, ups and downs, highs and lows, we'll get into it. And news of the week, there was some, so we'll yeah, do the usual thing. You guys mostly know the format by now. Right, let's jump in. UFC on ESPN 31. Pretty good card on paper. Pretty good card in practice. Your main event. Jose Aldo defeats Rob Font for unanimous decision. 250-45s, 149-46. I believe it was Sal D'Amato who gave Rob Font the third round. Um... I disagree. I thought Aldo won all five, but I suppose if you were going to get a round wrong, maybe the third is the least offensive possibility. Maybe I'd have to, I'd have to rewatch because Aldo, this was a really good fight. This didn't get fight of the night, which I call BS on, uh, but this was a really good fight. Font did a lot of what you were, what he kind of needed to do. Uh, early on, he was pushing a very high pace. He was winning that first round pretty handily up until the last you know, 20-ish seconds. When uh, Bear in mind, when I say handily, I don't mean dominating, but there was not a lot of dispute around who was winning that round prior to the end when Jose Aldo hits him with a clean one-two, drops him, gets on top. Uh, one of those scenarios where it's... It wouldn't be terribly out of line to say that, you know, 20 to 30 more seconds, maybe he's able to finish. Maybe not, but certainly enough to get the round back. And that's kind of how this fight played out for the first uh, three-ish rounds. It was a font keeping a very, very high pace, and doing so in the face of some of the abuse he took, uh, amazing. He kept his jab working. He, he just did what you needed to do in terms of the pace. The problems would stem any time he got a little bit lax with his defense, or when Aldo started to get a feel for his timing, especially if Aldo started coming forward, 
Aldo just hit a lot harder. And that ultimately proved a big problem for him. Uh, he landed on Aldo. His jab landed quite a bit. Uh, he busted up Aldo's right eye. Yeah, Aldo's right eye was a little bit tuned up after this. I want to say after the second round. Um, might have been after the th might have been after the second going into the third. And then the third round, uh, Aldo started changing his game a little bit. He had a he had a very I thought intelligent game plan for this that worked in series. Uh, initially, it was a lot of counterboxing. Once he got Font thinking about pretty much just the boxing, he started throwing the uh, leg kicks. He only did that for about a round. I think it was mostly the third round. Uh, I'd have to double check. It was either the third or the fourth, so forgive me if I'm incorrect about this. But kind of got Font going in one direction, then started hammering some heavy leg kicks. He actually knocked uh, Font over with leg kicks near the end of the round. Nasty. He didn't go back to them much after that round, but they were a nice, uh, it was a nice little addition to his game there. Nice to see the, the leg kicks back. Uh, the bigger thing, and I think the thing that ultimately really cost Font the fight, if we're just talking about uh, the scoring, he got actually a pretty decent takedown on Jose Aldo in the first. Uh, he went in for a single leg. One of the ways Jose Aldo defends the single and he's very famous for this if you've watched a lot of his fights, especially when everyone was just spamming him with takedowns. Uh, he feeds the leg through and then limp legs. Well, when you do that, you do technically expose your back. So a savvy fighter who's aware of what you're doing will then come up on your back. And that's what Font did. He drove him down to his hands and knees, although immediately popped back up. It wasn't a big control uh, kind of position, but it was a nice little, it was a very slick move from Font. Unfortunately, he couldn't quite maintain the position, and this needs to be said about Jose. Look, Jose Aldo's takedown defense has always been borderline unfair. Like, getting that man down is next to impossible. Keeping him down is an even greater t uh, task. But his, uh, what goes underappreciated, I think, is his, uh, his hand fighting, his grip breaking. Like, Chad Mendez was on his back... Uh, at one point in their first fight, holding the, the rear waist lock. Aldo, with relative ease, was able to break his grip, then turns and knees him in the face as they right at the end of the first round. It's a beautiful knockout. But some very strong fighters have tried to control Aldo, and he's excellent at attacking the hands and breaking your grip. Uh, it really doesn't get enough attention. Uh, so... Yeah, Font couldn't control him, couldn't maintain... And then, as the fight wore on, when Font would go for a takedown, Aldo would reverse him. And he's, Aldo spent a fair amount of rounds, like four and five, on top. Uh, big part, big chunks of round three, too. Uh, and Aldo, on top, man. Jose Aldo's jiu-jitsu does not get a lot of credit. Uh, not because it's not good, but because he doesn't use it a whole lot. But that man's passing game is, like, chef's kiss. He was cutting through Font's guard like butter. Now, credit to Font. Font re-guarded very, very well. He was in some bad spots and was always able to keep something active to prevent Aldo from just really settling into mount or back mount. Until we get to the fifth round. Fifth round, Aldo gets uh, gets on top and, is most, and uh, ends the round in back mount. Had a pretty close choke there near the end, too. But... Uh, that I think ultimately that's what hurt Font. You know, uh, Aldo was tiring after the third round. 
I mean, he was still in it. I, I don't mean he was gassed out, but it's not much of a stretch to say that Font was in better purely physical condition. If you jump on a treadmill, go for a run. Uh, Aldo's always had issues if he's forced to fight outside of his preferred pace. Unfortunately for Font, once we got into rounds, uh, again, like into later in the third, into four and five, uh, he gave up positions either against the fence or on the ground that allowed Aldo to kind of regain himself and stop the frantic pace that Font was pushing when they were on the feet. Uh, yeah, tough, tough fight for Rob Font. Man, Font's, uh, again, Aldo's right I got a little bit busted up. Uh, there was actually a grappling exchange, I think, in the third that exacerbated it. But between rounds, like, three and four was pretty... Uh, I think it was three and four, or two and three, if not. Like, his right eye got a little bit messed up, and Font was jabbing it pretty accurately. Aldo's one-two that kept landing, he did a number on Font's left eye. Uh, I think it was between rounds four and five. Um... It was either three and four or four and five. Uh, it swole up bad. Like Aldo dropped him with a one-two. I want to say it was the fourth. Aldo dropped him with a one-two, got on top, spent time in side control, and Font just spent a big chunk of that round with his left eye closed. Right now, some of it was voluntary, and then they got it under control enough between rounds to let him continue uh, medically. But that eye was messed up. It's still kind of messed up. He's posted some pictures. Uh, that that was a that was a bad bad eye for a bit. Uh, Aldo, Jose Aldo still hits really really hard. Uh, he got Font's attention with some body shots at various points. Uh, Font was saved by and large. One, his conditioning was really good. Two, he's he's pretty durable. Uh, but he also didn't stop moving. Anytime he got hit, uh, he just wouldn't. He never settled, which is really what Jose Aldo wants you to do. If you get hurt and you back into the fence, he wants you to be at least semi-stationary so he can really unload. Font never planted his feet to try and recover. It was always uh, always motion. Or tie up all the way and kind of settle things and clear your head there. Uh, which I genuinely think that saved him. There were times he was on the verge of being stopped. Now, our referee for this was Keith Peterson, and he had a fairly epic blunder earlier on the main card that we'll get to in a second. He just, Keith Peterson just was not in a fight in a mood to stop fights that night, I suppose. Uh, not a good night at the office for Keith Peterson. Uh, now, I'm not saying necessarily this fight in particular uh, was ever in a place where you where it was like, no, please stop the fight, but... Uh, in the fifth round, all, you know, there might have been a spot when Aldo was uh, landing some pretty good hammer fists and spun to the back, and he uh, he made the choice to go for the submission rather than try to pound things out. And whether that was influenced by Peterson's performance earlier or he just figured the choke was a safer avenue, I, I don't know. But either way, uh, but credit to Font for you know, staying mobile when he was very badly hurt in some cases. Because if he kind of got stagnant along the fence, that's where Aldo does his thing. He gets you... That's where, his fin, that's where his finishing instinct kicks in. He gets in front of you, he makes sure you can't really get away from him, and he just unloads. You, um, if you want another example of this, look what he did to Hanato Moicano. Got Moicano along the fence, and Moicano wasn't able to keep his feet moving as much as necessary. And Aldo just battered him. 
uh, until the ref stopped it. So, uh, credit to... there were I picked Jose Aldo, so I'm not here to pat myself on the back, but I was surprised at how many people were picking Font. Not because Rob Font's not a very, very good fighter. He is a very, very good fighter. But more because... I don't know, just matchup-wise, this didn't seem like a fight that played to Font's strengths. You know, Aldo's a competent enough striker to hang with Font, and I, I, I don't mean to say that Font is some, you know, master striker that Aldo was barely hanging on by, against. It was, you know, Aldo's clearly an exceptional striker. I just mean that Font's game is usually... Uh, he needs to overwhelm you somewhere. And usually that's striking. I mean, he, he jabbed up Cody Garbrandt uh, in his last fight, which sent Garbrandt to uh, 125, and we'll talk more about that in a minute or two when we get to the 269 preview. Uh, or he needs to be a much better grappler. Like, he needs a pretty clear avenue, uh, uh, an area where he is superior. Then he uh, he pressures that area until you make uh, a series of cascading mistakes. And he didn't have that here. Uh, maybe if he was able to just keep a relentless pace, he might have worn Aldo out. That, that's very possible. After the fact, he said, you know, I, I know I can beat Jose Aldo, but uh, he was the better man tonight. And it's not that I think pe- people picking Font were delusional. Uh, I And frankly, again, if a few things go just a little bit different, he could have won this fight. But I, I I was a little bit surprised at just how uh, it's not like Aldo was uh, excuse me not like Font was a giant favorite, but everyone seemed to arrive at favoring him, and some of them only slightly, but still. Uh, big big credit to Jose Aldo. I want to take just a second here and appreciate one of the all-time greats that the sport has produced. Uh, the UFC has not had rankings for. It's dura- for the duration of Jose Aldo's stay in the promotion. Uh, they only implemented them... They were a relatively recent addition. I forget exactly what year, so forgive me. But if you want to go by rankings, even before the UFC did, if you want to go by, like, share dog rankings, which for a while were maybe among the more accurate ones, he has fought ranked opposition uh, since he fought Cub Swanson in WEC. And if you're not familiar with when that happened, that fight took place in June of 2009. Everything before, everything since, he has fought a ranked opponent, a an opponent ranked by either a reputable third party or once the UFC implemented their rankings, the UFC's rankings. Just run these down real fast for you, just for the sake of argument. So, Cub Swanson. Mike Brown wins the WEC title. Uriah Faber, top-ranked. Manny Gamburian, Mark Hominick, Kenny Florian, Chad Mendez, Frankie Edgar, the Korean Zombie, Ricardo Lamas, Chad Mendez, Conor McGregor, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, Max Holloway, Jeremy Stevens, Hanato Moicano, Alexander Volkanovsky, Marlon Moraes, Piotr Jan, Marlon Vera, Pedro Munoz, Rob Font. Now, there's some losses in there. But find me a soft touch in that group. Look, you can argue that he was just a lot better than a lot of those guys, and he was. But 
you can't find me anyone in that group who wasn't... Again, all of them were ranked. Once the UFC implemented their rankings, he's only fought ranked guys. If you go back through his WEC career, you know, he doesn't... Uh, I think uh, Noguera, uh, Alessandro Franca Noguera, was ranked. I don't know about Brookins or Perez. I know Chris Mickle wasn't. And then I know Swanson was. And ever since then... You know, his win over Mike Brown, people, newer fans will not appreciate that. Mike Brown was a destroyer. Uh, he's known now as more of a coach, and he's a very good coach. One of the uh, one of the head coaches over at American Top Team. Great coach. Uh, has brought a lot of guys a lot of success there. But if you didn't watch when he was uh, when he was on the rise, like Mike Brown would mess you up. And Aldo uh, stopped him in the second. He won the first round too. Like, Jose Aldo's a remarkable, remarkable fighter. I mean, he's got almost 40 fights. He's only 35. Saw a funny little graphic. He and uh, Francis Ngannou are the same age. Like, almost, um... Like, uh, not just, like, they're both 35. I mean, they're very close, uh, like, date-wise. And... You know, Jose Aldo's got almost 40 fights, was undefeated for a decade, has one of the most impressive title reigns you'll find. And you know, Francis finally uh, became the UFC heavyweight champion, and I'm not trying to knock the guy, but they're the same age. <laughs> uh, Jose Aldo's been doing this forever, and his success is neither accidental, it's certainly not an accident. Uh, he's, he said he wants to fight for the belt again, or he wants to fight TJ Dillashaw. I tend to think Dillashaw would do bad things to him. Uh, I just think Aldo's a bit too stationary and a bit too, uh, immobile at this point to deal with what Dillashaw does. That said, Dillashaw's a touch chinny, and if he's not having his way in the striking... Uh, getting Jose Aldo down is still almost impossible. And he won't be able to just ice rounds with... Con like, I didn't think he beat Corey Sandhagen, uh, speaking of Dillashaw. But if you look at what he did to kind of convince people that he did win, he just got, again, a rear waist lock, shoved uh, Sandhagen into the fence, and was able to control segments of rounds. And then it's not like he didn't land any strikes during the rest during the course of that fight either. But he kind of put on a decent sell job about, I'm winning, I'm controlling. And Sandhagen's not the best at addressing control positions like that. It's something he really has to work on. You can't ice rounds against Jose Aldo like that. I mean, it was one of the more impressive things that Alexander Volkanovsky did to Aldo, was have non-trivial sections of control against the fence. That's very, very hard to do against Aldo. He's very well schooled in those positions, and as I mentioned, his grip breaking is uh, maybe the best in the sport. So that's a potential fight. Um, I'm still surprised we haven't tried, we haven't done Aldo and Dominic Cruz. Uh, I might actually favor Aldo in that fight, and my appreciation for what Dominic Cruz does is well documented on this podcast for years. 
But, I mean, Cruz has a fight with Pedro Munoz coming up at UFC 269, so we'll see. If Cruz wins and looks pretty good and he makes an issue out of it on the mic, uh, they might be able to make that fight. Uh, I just, I don't think Aldo, I don't think a rematch with Piotr Jan goes any better for Jose Aldo than their last fight did. Uh, I mean, against Aljamain Sterling, though. I'm not trying to say that Jose Aldo is, you know, a, a better fighter than Sterling in some in the abstract. But if we if we talk about how those two match up, um Sterling's longer. That might work to his advantage. But Sterling struggles if he can't force grappling on you, if he can't get you down and really work on the mat. And as has been mentioned many times already, that is a big ask when you're fighting Jose Aldo. Just based on how those two match up, Aldo might have a shot at beating Sterling. I wouldn't favor him over Sandhagen in a hypothetical fight. I think Cor I don't even favor him over Dillashaw. Uh, I just... But just specifically that matchup, you know? Aldo might have a... has a pretty viable path to victory against Aljamain Sterling. I'm just... I'm not saying he would win, but that's a closer fight than you might think if you just think old Jose Aldo against current bantamweight champion Aljamain Sterling. So, as for Font, I don't know. Uh, he's... Rob Font's a very, very good fighter. He's just come up a touch short in some pretty important positions. Uh, this being one of them. I, I think he'll rebound. I think he'll... You know, I think he's going to continue to win, but you know, there's there's no calling this thing anything other than a pretty big setback. You know, he was on a four-fight winning streak. He sent Sergio Pettis packing, and we'll get. I will talk briefly about Sergio. Let me talk about Sergio Pettis for just a second, right here. He fought at the Bellator event, and he knocked out Kyoji Horiguchi in the fifth round after losing every round up to that point. Horiguchi was uh, I mean, I don't want to say dominating, you know, the, the, we're not talking 10 eights, but that, that fight was heavily breaking in favor of Horiguchi. I had him up four rounds to nothing and he was winning again, pretty handily. Uh, that would, that undersell Sergio Pettis as a fighter to say that he, he wasn't getting blown out, but they weren't especially, the rounds were not especially close. And then Pettis... Coming out of the, like, they, they kind of tie up, and Pettis throws a right head kick that Horiguchi, that goes over Horiguchi's shoulder, and he follows it up with a spinning back fist and just flatlines him. Uh, heartbreaking for those of us that have followed Horiguchi, but uh, heck of a win for Sergio Pettis, man. Uh, that dude has finally kind of found himself as a fighter. But the point being there, Rob Font sent that guy... Sent him to... Look, I don't mean to be overly dismissive of Bellator, but you want to know why Sergio Pettis is fighting in the B-Leagues? It's Rob Font. I think Font was his last fight in the UFC. Let me double-check that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was. No, sorry, Tyson Nam was. He fought Tyson Nam after that. Font was his last loss. Um, and, you know, you know good, good on Pettis. He's done nothing but win since that fight. And as I mentioned, that, that spinning back fist of Kyoji Horiguchi is... That's going to feature in my knockout of the year list somewhere. 
I don't know where exactly, but that's going to be somewhere on that list. That was a beautiful knockout. Uh, just beautiful. And Font sent that guy packing. Uh, without like, That was not a close fight either. And he beat Ricky Simone, who's on a good run. He not he finished Marlon Moraes in the first round. Beat Cody Garbrandt consi- uh, over five rounds. That was was that five to nothing for him? One judge had it 48-47. I think I, two others 50-45. I think I was 50-45. Uh, Might have given Garbrandt one. I have to double check my official report, but uh, you know, beat Cody Garbrandt in not. Not terribly close. Uh, I don't know what exactly will be next for him, but uh, it's a setback. Hopefully one he can rebound from. So, uh, the amazing run of Jose Aldo continues, man. I, I'm one of those guys who thought after that second Holloway fight he might be done. Uh, you know, then the loss to Volkanovski. Uh, the Marais fight, I scored it for Marais, personally. Uh, I, I I can understand people scoring it for Aldo. I thought Marais won that. Then Oh, man, that yawn beating. The beating he took in rounds four and five of that fight with Piotr Jan is potentially career-altering damage, and he's done nothing but win since. Uh, I'm not here to tell you to be a fan of Jose Aldo, okay? I'm, I'm really not. He's His personality rubs some people the wrong way, and I'm not here to convince you otherwise, but appreciate what that man has accomplished and is continuing to do despite being really long in the tooth. There's not many people in his position turning back top contenders like Rob Font. That just doesn't happen all that often. All right, co-main event. Rafael Faziv defeats Brad Riddell via a wheel kick. 220 of the third. This was a darn good fight. Uh, It wasn't as high-paced as some others. But the intensity between these two, anytime they clashed, it was everyone's throwing three and four punches, and there they were just many car crashes I heard, saw them described as. It was constant. Uh, I had it around a piece going into the third. Um, I thought Riddell snuck, uh, had kind of edged out the first round. He ended that round with a really nice combination, and while I had Fazeev head slightly, uh, it, it was a big enough series of punches uh to, I think, overcome that. You know, they both landed some nasty body kicks. You know, good combination work when they threw from both guys. Uh, really brutal little fight here. And then Fazeev with this wonderful finish. He hadn't... I don't think he'd thrown any spinning attacks prior to this. Or if he did, there was like one spinning back kick, but that was it. He's southpaw and Riddell's kind of against the fence. He switches to orthodox, and Riddell then starts moving to his own right. He wasn't doing that when Fazeev was southpaw to avoid circling into the power leg or the power hand. As he starts circling, his hands drop just a hair, and Fazeev blasts him with a wheel kick. Um, He doesn't go down. He actually back, he gets hit, wobbled, backs into the fence, and you can see him, you can see Riddell, like, wave things off, like, no, okay, we're done here. Uh, And the ref immediately got in after that, so... Uh, nice, nice finish from Fazeev. Uh, Fazeev has had a heck of a year. Uh, he's only he's fought twice. I mean, he ended 2020 with a kind of a statement win over Hanato Moicano. He's this year dis, uh, 
that fight with Bobby Green where he faded in that third pretty badly, but w the work he'd done in the first two was more than enough to carry a win. And then finishing Brad Riddell like this, uh, he's he'll be ranked around the top 10 at lightweight when this is all said and done. This was like number 14 in Fazeev and number 12, I think, in Riddell. Uh, he'll be fighting next year. He's going to be fighting nothing but uh, like top 10 opposition. Uh, he's a really, really talented guy. Uh, tough setback for Riddell. It's for Riddell's first loss in the UFC, but he's still a really talented fighter. Uh, this was a good little fight. Let's see, moving on. Light heavyweight. Jamal Hill knocked out Jimmy Crute with punches. 48 seconds of the first round. Not a whole lot to talk about here. Crute came out throwing some kicks. Jamal just, he cracked him with a right hook. Uh... Crute got back up to his credit, but he was damaged. Uh, Hill had then hit him with not ex it was still a right hook, but the setup was different, so I don't want to call it the same punch. And it's the same punch if you want to be uh, in the in the sense that it was the right hand in a hook in a hook punch, but a very different setup. Uh, drops him with it a second time. One follow up. Crute's left eye was swollen completely shut after the fight. Uh, Statement win from Jamal Hill there. Uh, I think Hill's undefeated in the UFC. I'm gonna, he might have one loss. Yeah, he had the loss to Paul Craig. But Hill's a darn good fighter. He said after the fact he wants to fight. Uh, if Paulo Costa's coming up to 205, he wants to fight him. If not him, then Johnny Walker. Um, those are reasonable callouts, I think. I don't. He doesn't quite have a big enough name and presence to maybe attract Paulo Costa. You know, a former title challenger moving up would might command some ranked opposition. But uh, after a big win like this, they're not unreasonable callouts. In this, he didn't he didn't do this and then say, "I want to fight for the belt" or "I want to fight," uh, you know, the form a former champion. You know, he he didn't do that. He made ambitious, I would say, but not unwarranted callouts. So. Uh, good for him. Good, good finish. I'm going to talk a little bit about this next one. At lightweight, Clay Guida defeats Leonardo Santos via rear naked choke, uh, 121 of the second. This fight should have been stopped in the first. And Keith Peterson, the ref here, old, uh, cigarette, old uh, cigarettes and uh, booze himself, he screwed this one up. Uh, Santos hits a front kick to the body that basically cripples Guida. He gets him against the fence, and he unloads. He drops him. drops. Uh, he drops him with body shots. He fights back up. He drops him with a knee to the face. There were almost like 50 unanswered strikes here. And I can't say anything other than this should have been stopped. You get dropped twice like that. Uh, it's, it's, there, was, there were two different points when this could have been stopped. The first time he gets dropped, it, it's kind of off of body shots. And he's just kind of turtled up, hugging an ankle as Santos pounds him with you know, uh, punches and hammer fists. And the ref just decides he wants to see blood. So they fight back up and <laughs> Santos drops Guida with a knee to the face. And he like face plants. Uh, but I think I think hitting the ground woke him up. Uh, but Guida and this is not a knock on Guida. You know, he persevered despite that, got a takedown, ended the round on top. Uh, then comes out, and, and Santos just completely gassed himself out going for that finish. Uh, Guida came out in the second round, kept 
pushing after him, got him down, got his back. Uh, I'm not emotionally attached to Clay Guida. I have been very, uh, I'm not a fan, haven't ever been a fan of his. So I'm not one of these people getting misty-eyed over it. And as I said, this should have been stopped. This was a total blunder by the ref. And anyone's out there going, but he came back and he won the fight. That's not the argument. The argument is, was Clay Guida intelligently defending himself in the moment? And nearly 50 unanswered strikes is not intelligently defending yourself. At that, Anytime somebody gets hit that much without landing anything back, you could stop it just based on that. Uh, this was a horrible non-stoppage by Keith Peterson. Um, Guida got a post-fight bonus. He better cut a big, fat-ass portion of that check to Peterson. Because that should have been stopped. Uh, there's there's not really an excuse for that. I mean, I, again, I know you're out there going, but he started moving. And then he got dropped again. And... There's a reason we don't fight until someone's unconscious. That's not the standard. And there was a period of time when Guida stopped defending himself intelligently and the fight should have been stopped. It's not that complicated. The fact that he, the fact that the referee botched it and he did come back to win it is, look, I'm not going to sit here and discount Clay Guida's toughness. Plenty of other people would not have had anywhere near the fortitude necessary to continue after that barrage, and he did when, aff when afforded essentially a administrative officiating error. You know, other people would not have been able to mount the comeback that he did, and he deserves credit for that. Fair enough. I'm not get That's not really the point, though. The point is that the fight should not have been allowed to continue, and shame on the ref. Keith Peterson did not have the best night at the office here. Uh, and look, this is not me. I mentioned this is not me go, being you know some kind of dominant Cruz homer and going Cruz was right all along. No, I wasn't in love with the way he stopped uh, Cruz and Henry Cejudo, but uh, I could live with it. You know, he's he's usually it's not that he's never had blunders. Every ref has. But this was a pretty big one. This is this one's going to stick in my head for a bit. So Guida gets a win. Then afterwards, uh, fellates the UFC machine that I guarantee you, buddy, does not care about you and is going to cut you any day. And look, when he gets cut, in the old days, he might have got some kind of cushy office job. Uh, those don't exist anymore, so he's... Uh, there's a good chance he winds up as one of those sad stories when we all talk about how the UFC should treat its fighters better, when really the onus is on the fighters at this point to organize or do or shut up. Like, uh, loosely related to that, I'm not going to go too deep into this. There was a financial institution. Um, oh, which one was it? Morgan Stanley? Uh, let me double check this because I think I have that somewhere and I don't want to be wrong about this. Uh, okay. I forget what's, uh, the chart in question comes from Sportico and I forget exactly which, uh, it comes from Morgan Stanley. Yeah, it comes from Morgan Stanley. So Morgan Stanley's numbers, they just rendered it in graph format. Okay. Um, the estimated revenue for the UFC for 2021 is currently set at around 930 million. Uh, this is going to be one of their biggest financial years ever. 
Uh, and the reality is, now I'm not quite sure how this breaks down. Um, I would need to, mostly because I'm not sure how the UFC categorizes a couple of these potential numbers here. But the the lion's share, all, um, almost a full half of their total income comes from uh, core content rights in the United States, which is basically their what ESPN is paying them. And that's $447 million. You tack on top of that their international rights for core content. This is, again, this is their TV stuff, the prelims, uh, whatever deal they might have with uh, the UK, certain other... Pl- now, like the UK, I think, still has UFC pay-per-views just available on their one of their premium uh, cable subscriptions, uh, their premium cable deals. I think it's Sky Sports. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. Anyone listening in the UK wants to correct me on that, please do so. But, but And that's 109. So just between their core content rights, they're almost at $600 million. Their, their estimated... Um, the estimated revenue from pay-per-view sales is only $59 million. Now, this is where I'm a little bit questionable about this because I'm not sure if pay-per-view sales get lumped in with core content for purely United States... for the United States market because of the ESPN Plus deal or not. Uh... But as it stands, pay-per-view sales and like what they get from Fight Pass, they get like $59 million a year from Fight Pass, give or take. Um, a lot of people just have it, I guess. Like, if that's all that they care about, like, if that's... If the core content rights in, uh, does not include um, the, the, the domestic pay-per-view sales... Um, if that's literally just what ESPN is paying them which it very well might be. They don't care about pay-per-view sales anymore, guys. <laughs> uh, e- the biggest star in the world is no- has, like, no leverage at this point. Uh, if we're if we're talking about... You know, who- who's got the UFC over a barrel when half of their yearly earnings are locked in guaranteed, provided they hit a, num- a certain number of events that are broadcast? Like, they just don't care that... Uh, you know, Conor McGregor moves more pay-per-views than, uh, um, what, what was, I mean, it went for 268, why am I blanking on this? Um, then you, Kamaru Usman, or, you, uh, you know, a lesser pay-per-view headliner that they've had, you know, I, pick one, I don't care. They don't care, like, they have insulated themselves from being leveraged by individual fighters. It would take, I think this is true, in order for the fighters to collect, first of all, the only way they're going to get any leverage is collectively. And even then, like so I heard a question that recently on some other um, podcast, you know, what would happen if all of the UFC champions right now just said, you know, uh, until we get some kind of collective bargaining, we're not fighting. Well, the answer is the UFC would just strip them and move on. You have the only way you're gonna get leverage over the UFC is to upset this machine that they've built, and the only way you're gonna do that is collectively. You would need to stop the UFC from hitting 45 or you know, 42, 45, 47, whatever their number is, events per year, and that's it. That's gonna be a tricky thing to pull off because the UFC can always hire. I'm gonna use the pejorative scabs. They can find regional fighters and just throw them under the UFC banner. They don't care. You would need to get 
somewhere between a third and half of the UFC roster to stop signing bout agreements. And if you could do that, they might st- frankly, there might still be enough talent uh, willing to come over from other markets, from other organizations to still fill that stopgap. It's entirely possible that the UFC could f- cut everyone on the roster right now repopulate it with fighters from the regional scene, the international scene, etc., and still hit all the benchmarks necessary to fulfill their contractual obligations to still be profitable. I don't know that for sure, but that wouldn't shock me. So, the point being there, you know, Guida's going to turn into one of these sad stories sooner rather than later. And the only way to prevent that is, the way you prevent that is not sucking up to the UFC brass, who don't care. It's some kind of collective agreement that uh, betters your financial situation. And look, I beat this drum on occasion when I think it's relevant, but, you know, I I don't know what fighters, other media members have mentioned this, you know, what more uh, fighters saying that media didn't shine enough of a light on this. And for a time, that was true. They've shined the light. I don't know what else you want. They can't organize for you. They can't lobby on your behalf. They can't pass legislation. I can't do anything other than talk about it on occasion. I'm not in a position to mandate something different at the federal level, which is kind of what you'd need. I'm not in a position to organize some kind of fighters group. I'm not... (laughs) Anything else that happens next has to come from the fighters themselves. Otherwise... You, nothing else can be done externally. Uh, again, unless we're talking at the legislative level. Anything else? Sorry. Like you're, we know it sucks, but there's literally nothing else we can do. Short of some kind of violent upheaval, I suppose. Uh, but I'm not going to mention... But no, neither here nor there. Like At that point, we'd be talking about stuff like... That's not relevant. So... Uh, Next up at middleweight, Chris Curtis, the action man himself, defeats Brendan Allen via TKO. uh, Punches, and then he hit a really nice knee, actually, in the second round. Uh, I picked Brendan Allen here. I was uh, still a pretty big believer in Brendan Allen's upside. He's a very good fighter. But let's just take a minute and appreciate Chris Curtis. Uh, Not only getting his... uh, He closes the year. He's 6-0 in 2021. Two of those in the UFC. He was a... Pretty big underdog against Phil Haas and knocked him out. He was a pretty big underdog here and badly hurt Allen with a right hook. A really nasty right hook. Finishes him off along the fence line with a knee. Uh, so 6-0 in 2021, 2-0 in the UFC. This guy's had a weird career. You may not remember this, but one of the... I think he was on season one of Dana White's Contender Series. Um, it was season one or two, early season. And I know that because he knocked out his opponent with a hook kick uh, and did not get signed. That was back when they were still trying to pretend that they weren't just going to sign anyone who finished a fight. They were still in denial, either publicly or personally, about the Contender Series just being a puppy mill to field the UFC machine. That's all that is, by the way. Uh, So they didn't sign the guy. I think he retired after that. Like, I've I've, I've had it. I'm not going to put myself through this anymore. He came out of retirement, clearly. I had a pretty good run through the PFL. 
finally gets signed and uh, to the extent that you believe in feel-good stories in MMA, he's having a pretty good feel-good moment here, man. He's, by his own admission, on the, he's 34, I think, so he doesn't have a lot of time left. But middleweight's a little bit different, but he knows he's not, you know, in the prime of his, phys- he's not his physical peak. Uh, and he's here knocking fools out that people have a lot of faith in for the future in terms of both Haas and Allen, so good on him. Uh, kicking off the main card, Alex Morono defeats Mickey Gall, the unanimous decision. 38-27 across the boards. Uh, Morono just better. I mean, Gall... With... Uh, how do I say this? You do not want to try and grow up in terms of your career in the UFC. It's terrible for you. Look at the... Fi- you want to know how many fighters came into the UFC, the modern UFC, at le- with less than five fights and had real success? I can think of a couple. They're heavyweights. Because uh, both Brock Lesnar and Cain Velasquez came in very, very early in their careers. But one, heavyweight's different. Two, you're talking about in Brock a, a complete athletic freak. And in Kane, <sighs> Kane in the cage. Like when Kane was on, the best he- was maybe the best heavyweight I've ever seen. His body let him down, but you've got to be a special kind of fighter to do that. Guys like Matt Riddle, uh, Mickey Gall, uh, Corey Hill. That's a throwback. Uh, these These are people who basically fought their careers in the UFC, and they show the war wounds of that. You, there's a lot of maturity about your skill set that just doesn't happen when you're fighting nothing but, you know, nearly world-class levels of competition. Now, again, that's not quite as true now of the UFC as it used to be, but it's still pretty darn true. So, uh, decent enough win for Morano, who's on a good run. You know, he might be due uh, someone near the top 15, or, you know, in that lower part of the top 15. So, that was your main card. As for the prelims... Dusko Todorovic defeats Maki Patolo via TKO punches at 434 the first. Uh, rocked Patolo a little bit with a head kick. Got hit pretty hard. Um, got a takedown and just on the ground was much better. Pass guard, beat him up from... Uh, the stoppage came from, like, back mount. He had, he had uh, both hooks in, flattened him out, pounded on him. Good stoppage, good performance out of Todorovic, who needed a rebound. Flyweight, good grief. Manel Kopp defeats Zalgash Zumagulov via TKO, 402 of the first. Uh, Zumagulov had Kopp a little bit out of position early, his pace and his pressure. Manel Kopp likes to get a good read on you, and then he starts sniping. Uh, once he, and that's what happened, once he did, um, oof, hit a beautiful one-two, badly hurt Zumagulov. He got back up, but got pressed into the fence. Stopped moving, and the fin- the finishing sequence that Cop unloaded on him was a beautiful barrage of punches. If Manel Cop has finally found his footing in the UFC, finally got his weight cut managed, that dude is a handful at flyweight. Uh, this was a really good performance out of him. Welterweight Brian Barberina defeated Darian Weeks via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Weeks took this fight on... Less than a week's notice, replacing Matt Brown. 
Uh, he acquitted himself pretty well. I think he won the second. Um, he thought of the third, and Barbarina just won the first two. I think it was the second, and then uh, Barbarina came back to win the third. Uh, not a bad little fight here. Not quite the violence fest that Barbarina and Matt Brown would have been, but, you know, Brown uh, had a positive COVID test, so hope he's okay. Uh, women's strawweight, the former Cheyenne Bai, Sharon, uh, Cheyenne Vlismas, she has gone back to her maiden name, defeated Mallory Martin via unanimous decision, won 30-27 and 2-29-28. I was 30-27 for Vlismas. Martin just never had a real way to kind of stop Cheyenne from moving. She kept getting chewed up on the outside. A pretty good win for Vlismas. Light heavyweight, William Knight defeated Alonzo Menafield via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Did not agree with this. Um, at all. Uh, you would have to give Knight the third round. Like, the first two rounds are not really in dispute here. Uh, Knight pretty badly hurts Menafield in the first. Menafield takes the second. Then, in the third, I get that you don't want to overvalue control on the fence. I really do. But... You need to do something to counteract that. If someone's able to control you there for long stretches of the fight, you do need to overcome that scoring deficit. Now, it's not terribly difficult to overcome that scoring deficit, assuming nothing major happens in the clinch, and it didn't here. But you do still have to overcome it, and I don't think Knight did. I don't think he did a... I don't think Knight landed a single really effective blow in the third round. I did not agree with the scoring of this one at all. Lightweight, Claudio Puez defeated Chris Gritzmacher via knee bar, 325 of the third. Decent little fight here. Puez is, uh, Puez? I forget. I think it's Puez. Uh, he's pretty legit. He's flying a little bit under the radar at lightweight, but uh, he's he lost his UFC debut and has gone 4-0 and since. He's got two knee bar submissions. Uh, one of the few people to have two knee bars in the UFC. He might be the first. Uh, now he's gone 2-0 and this year. He's a prospect worth paying attention to. And kicking off the main card, Vince Morales defeated Luis Smolka via knockout punches, 2-2 of the first. Uh, they were clinched up, and Morales just kind of dropped back to southpaw and then hit a nice right hook as they were breaking right over the shoulder. Smolka caught, him, caught Smolka right behind the ear. Smolka flare-flopped. Uh, got on top, pounded him out. Good stuff from Morales here. Sucks for Smolka. Smoker's a pretty talented guy, but his deficiencies have just never really been addressed. So, solid win for uh, Morales. Your performance of the night, your bonuses. Your fight of the night was Cheyenne Vlismus and Mallory Martin, as mentioned, which I don't agree with. That should have been Aldo and Font. And then performances, Rafael Fiziev, Jamal Hill, Clay Guida, Chris Curtis. No arguments with any of those. Uh, little bit sucks that Morales kind of got... Morales kind of got a little bit hosed on that. He had the clean... I think he had the cleanest knockout. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I, I can't really disagree with too many of those, so... That was the event. I want you to... I want to thank everyone who read that or followed along live with my coverage over at 411mania.com. So, uh, I give you... I give my thanks for that. Alright, let's... Let's move on. UFC 269. This coming Saturday. Last pay-per-view event for the year. 
Um, there are 15 fights on this card as it currently stands. Two of them title fights. When I, the UFC needs to learn, that's a bad idea. I'm sure they're looking at this going, Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier is not going the distance. Nunes and Pena is not going the distance. That Stop with that line of thinking. How many people looked at... Uh, how many people looked at like Knight and Menafield and said, there's no way this is going the distance? Well, guess what? It happens, and punishing your viewers by making them sit through eight hours of your content when some of it's not very good. Like, that's just bad. Uh, so I don't like that. We're probably going to... They're kind of banking on a few of these falling through, which is has been something of the norm lately, but it's still a bad idea. Uh, all right, your main event. For the lightweight title, Charles Oliveira goes for his first title defense against Dustin Poirier, former interim champion, and getting his second crack at the real belt. This is a great fight. Uh... I've mentioned before that I favor Poirier for this fight, but uh, I think if I'm going to get more specific about that, there's a couple of things here. Um, first of all, I'm not going to be shocked if either man wins. I, 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 ha, I have a way I lean, but it's a lean. Uh, nothing more than that. Charles Oliveira is a finisher of the highest order. Um, the man's on a long winning streak. I mean, okay, here's a fun little fact for you about about Oliveira. He's only been to decision four times in his entire 40-fight 40, uh, 40 career. Uh, his current, let me see, he, lo- he won a unanimous decision over Jeremy Stevens in 2014. He did not see the judges again. Until he fought Tony Ferguson last year. And let's be clear about that. I still don't know how Tony Ferguson didn't tap out to that arm bar in the first round. No earthly idea. Oliveira's current winning streak is pretty long. It's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, it's nine fights in a row. Now, some of those are against washed up names like Clay Guida, Jim Miller, a little bit washed, Nick Lentz. The most recent three are pretty big wins. He submitted Kevin Lee, he beat up Tony Ferguson for three rounds, and then he TKO'd Michael Chandler. Um, he might have the most... Does he have the record for most... Yeah, he has the most finishes in UFC history at 17. Really the most... Yeah, he beat Donald Cerrone. Cerrone's at 16. Uh, This dude's a finisher. And that's... That's a rough card to try and play against Dustin Poirier. Who is... Look, man. His only two... His only losses in the... He's only lost, what, a handful of times in the UFC? Uh, let's see, lost to Jung, Swanson, McGregor, Michael Johnson, and then Khabib. Um, he was finishing a few of those, actually. Jung, I mean, the Jung fight was so long ago, I don't even count it. Um, the Johnson fight might be a bit more informative, but 
that was also the fight that kind of got him to re- to address some of his defensive issues in a real way. Since then, his only loss was to Khabib. And everybody lost to Khabib. <laughs> He's got wins over some big names, and a lot of those... These are two guys who are usually finishers. You know, he finished Anthony Pettis, he finished Justin Gaethje, he finished Eddie Alvarez, he went the distance with Max, because, dude... Max Holloway is almost impossible to finish. I think the only time Holloway was finished was the first time he fought Poirier. Yeah. So, you know. Okay, went the distance with a guy that he finished once before, but is a much, much different version of himself now. Went the distance with Dan Hooker because that fight's a... Dude, that fight was one of the best of 2020. That was a brutal war. Finished Connor twice this year. Dude, if Poirier beats Connor twice, stopping him both times, and then caps the year off by winning the title, that's your fighter of the year. And that's not particularly close. Like, we had some other good fighter. Some other fighters have had good years, but... Both men are good strikers. They use different styles. Um... Oliver is much more upright, which might cause him problems, depending on how uh, uh, Poirier wants to kick. The opposite stances, because uh, Oliver is orthodox normally, whereas Poirier fights southpaw despite being right-handed. And he's done so for long enough now that he just... He fights as a converted southpaw and has for essentially his entire career. Uh the, opening, the opposite stances is a bit interesting. Um, Oliver is a good kicker, and that will open up a body kick. So we'll see how that plays into things. Um, in terms of pure punching power, Poirier punches harder. Uh, that shouldn't be... But being able to finish someone with punches is not just about how hard you hit. I mean, if you if you ask who hits harder, Justin Gaethje or Charles Oliveira, the answer is Justin Gaethje. So why then did, was Oliveira able to finish Michael Chandler with punches where Justin Gaethje was not? Well, because Chandler's good, uh, Chandler, because Oliveira's good about timing his punches when you're not expecting them. You know, it It's a cliche for a reason, but it's the ones you don't see and you're not braced for that really do the damage. When he caught Chandler with that left hook, Chandler just wasn't expecting it. And I think Chandler was much more braced physically and mentally for the bludgeoning that comes when you fight Justin Gagey than he was to be punched really, really hard in the head by Charles Oliveira. I might be wrong about that. It might have just been a really perfectly timed and placed punch. That happens all the time. But, again, if we're just talking raw punching power, the edge goes to Poirier. Um, Poirier's shifting punches might be a problem for Oliveira. Oliveira's not great on the back foot. Um, He's dealt a little bit with some of his uh, fragility be that physical or mental, used to be that if you if things started going against Oliveira, he just gave up mentally. Like, you could see people uh, break him. And some cases do it pretty consistently. He didn't have a, a big comeback in him. And he seems to have fixed that. I mean, Kevin Lee had some serious moments against him, and he kept going. Michael Chandler almost finished him, and he persevered through that. So I don't expect him to complete to just crumble the way he used to. Uh, I think the longer this goes, the more it favors Poirier. Poirier is 
really good in kind of you know drawn out brutal fights and I don't Oliver is not nearly as kind of fragile as he used to be as I mentioned but he's still I don't know how he holds up in a war over five rounds. And that's that tends to be what Poirier looks for. Now, on the ground, things get interesting. Oliveira's the better grappler, but uh, Poirier certainly ca- is competent enough there to make that a little bit interesting. I think Oliveira might be the one that tries to look for takedowns, and Oliveira's takedowns from the body lock are really good. His His wrestling shot is not... He doesn't have a great double leg. Uh, he's good about he's good enough about making contact, but these days he tends to make contact and then come up and try to work from the clinch rather than just shoot for your legs and get you down from there. The, the, the straight wrestling has never been a big strength of his. And Poirier's, you know, if they hit the fence, Poirier's fence wrestling is among the best in the world. He's really good there. Um... I think if Poirier, I think Poirier is going to try to tire Oliveira out. Uh, I think he's just going to try and put him in uncomfortable positions. Uh, Oliveira is going to try to do the same. Oliveira's hands are a little bit more uh, technically polished, but Poirier's defense does seem to give polished strikers problems. I mean, Max Holloway struggled to really find sustained success in the punching against him, and Oliveira is not nearly. Uh, what Max Holloway is, if we're just talking about how you punching in MMA. So, it's a great fight. It's a really, really good fight. Um, I think the longer it goes, the more it's the more this leans towards Poirier. Uh, I'm going to pick Dustin Poirier here again. I lean towards him. It's a lean. And if Oliveira wins, I'm not going to be surprised one bit. I don't care how he wins. Like, he's a good enough grappler that him submitting Poirier won't shock me. He's a good enough striker that him catching and knocking Poirier out won't shock me. Has Poirier been... Su- I mean, has he been submitted since the... Uh, Jung got him with a submission, but... Yeah, not... Su- okay, Khabib tapped him, but it's also Khabib. So, point being, I, I won't be surprised in any way with either man winning... Poirier might hurt Oliveira, get him to make a bad shot, and then grab a guillotine and choke him out. Oliveira's been guillotined before. Uh, Pettis caught him with one of those. So did... Who's the other guy that guillotined him? I mean, Nick Lenz kept trying. Uh, Lamas. Ricardo Lamas guillotined him. So it's... Needs to be changed. Sorry, I'm looking at a list here. Uh, you can also play in his guard. He will play guard with you, and if you're good enough there... I mean, that's what Paul Felder did. Paul Felder elbowed the crap out of that guy, man. Brutalized him. Poirier might try to do that. Uh, wouldn't shock me all that much. Again, some of this is going to break down to how they feel when they tie up. So, I mean, that's what Felder said. You know, His game plan was not ground and pound. But once he survived that choke in the first... He just kind of felt something when he was on top. Like, okay, I can make this work. So, it's a really good... I said, it's a really, really good fight. I lean towards Poirier. The winner of this probably fights Justin Gaethje. Um, and I really want to see Poirier and Gaethje in a rematch with what Justin Gaethje has done to change his style. Their first fight was great. Gaethje, the way he fights now against Poirier, I think it'd be even better. So... 
It's a great fight. All right. Co-main event. A less great fight. Uh, Amanda Nunes is going to fight Juliana Pena. Um, what's Pena been doing? Pena's last fight was earlier this year when she beat Sarah McMahon. Prior to that, she got beat up and finished by Jermaine Durandamy. <laughs> Choked out. Uh, she's been really inactive. Like, she missed... She fought once in 2017 when Valentina Shevchenko beat her. She didn't fight again until 19, only once in 19, only once in 20. It's the first time she's fought twice in a year since 2015. Uh, look, Pena's a good grappler. And if she's able to get on top, she's got good passing, pretty good control. Uh, I'm not... She's not here by accident in that respect. But she's really upright in her posture. She doesn't have good defense. And if you're fighting Amanda Nunes, your striking defense better be good. Otherwise, you're going to die. Someone's going to beat Amanda Nunes at some point. I've said this before. It's still true. If you fight long enough, it's going to happen. She has losses on her record. Only one of them in the UFC. Um... And that was Katzengana who had to wade through hell to get that third round stoppage. Undefeated since. I don't I need a pretty significant reason if I'm gonna try and pick against Amanda Nunes. And Juliana Pena does not present that. So I expect Nunes to look, watch Juliana Pena after the first time Amanda Nunes hits her and watch how she reacts. That's gonna tell the story of this fight. People who, women who do not panic the first time they get hit really hard, tend to do, they still, they've still lost, but they do a little bit better. You look at someone like Megan Anderson, or the other woman that just, it was almost comical. Um, I mean, Felicia Spencer, after the first time Nunez hit her, look at what happened to her, I mean, her eyes got big, like, oh, crap. Jermaine Durandamy didn't have that problem. Like, okay, you hit hard, and I don't want to be punched by you, but she didn't panic. Cyborg didn't panic, still got beat, but didn't panic. Raquel Pennington in that fight. First few times, suddenly her eyes get big. Even even her title-winning effort when Nunez beat Misha Tate. Like, the first few times Nunez punched her, her brain short-circuited, and I don't mean she got knocked out, I mean, oh... That, oh, crap, I don't know how to handle this. I've never been hit this hard in a real fight. Uh, Tate and some, uh, plenty of other women who have fought with Amanda Nunes have said basically the same thing. She hits like a man. And I don't mean that to be, you know, sexist. I mean, that's how she's been described. Generally, generally, men hit harder than women. Again, generally. There are women out there who hit really hard, and there's some women out there who don't hit hard who are still skilled enough fighters to ruin your day or mine. But you rarely see women who hit that hard. It was one of the things that, I mean, Cyborg was kind of the same way. People would get hit by her, and just, they had no, they panicked. They had no frame of reference. And watch what happens to Pena the first couple of times she gets hit. That'll If she's able to maintain composure, she might have a shot. If she panics, well, panicking against Amanda Nunes is a really bad idea. I, I just, Pena's defense on the feet, her lack of head movement, 
upright posture does not speak well to her chances. Welterweight fight. Jeff Neal and Santiago Ponzinibbio. This week, Jeff Neal was arrested uh, for DWI, and apparently there's some weapon charges attached to that, which could just mean there was a weapon in the car, not properly secured, or he didn't have his license for it, or something along those lines. That'll vary state to state. Um, apparently that's not going to affect his, uh, his appearance on this card at the moment, and we'll have to wait and see if that stays, but the UFC doesn't seem to care about that kind of stuff as a general rule, unless they choose to, but their inconsistency is their own issue. Uh, as for this fight, uh, man, Jeff Neal had that long winning streak, looked good in a lot of those, fell off the, I mean, Tom, look, falling short against Stephen Thompson over five rounds... Not the worst thing in the world, but he didn't have an adjustment to make against Neil Magny, and that was a real problem for him. Uh, Ponzinibbio, by contrast, uh, lost to Li Jing Leong at the beginning of the year, came back and beat Miguel Baeza. Uh, that seems to have derailed Baeza in a pretty big way. You know, a couple of years ago, I would have picked Jeff Neal. Uh, I shouldn't say a couple of years ago. I think last year, I would have picked Neal. This year, uh, this is a really close fight. Neil's a little bit more uh, consistent a striker. Ponzinibbio a little bit wilder. If Ponzinibbio's a, um, if Ponzinibbio's too reckless, Neil has the kind of power that could really hurt him. Uh, I think Ponzinibbio might accommodate Neil's preferred fighting style too much. Actually, yeah, I'm gonna pick Neil still, but last year. Would have been a lot more confident in my pick, but that's a pretty good fight. Flyweight, Kai Kara France will welcome former bantamweight champion Cody Garbrandt to the flyweight ranks. Um, Kara France is let's see, coming off a win. Uh, his first stoppage win in the UFC. He knocked out Rogerio Bonterin. Uh, this is a pretty... Depending on how the weight cut goes for Cody Garbrandt, this is a pretty big spot for him. He's not in a good way. He is 1-4 in his last five. Knocked out by Dillashaw. Knocked out by Dillashaw again. Knocked out by Pedro Munoz. Beat Rafael Asensio. That beautiful knockout last year. Oof. The great knockout. But he got just beat everywhere pretty much by Rob Font uh, earlier this year. So he needs a win pretty badly. I mean, I don't know too many fighters who have had a single sublime performance and then fallen off a cliff like this. You watch Cody Garbrandt when he fights TJ Dillashaw the second time, and he bears no resemblance to the man who handled Dominic Cruz. Uh, it's wildly, wildly different fighter uh, in terms of what he's doing in there. He needs, he has regressed in some respects, and people have kind of figured out his game a little bit. I mean, look, Pedro Munoz is just willing to throw hammers with him and just bank on his chin being better, and it was. But Font really did lay down a pretty concise blueprint about how to do this. Um, whether or not Cara France can replicate that, Cara France is a bit chinny. I'm going to pick Garbrandt here. I'm going to lean towards him. But if that weight cut diminishes him... Um, I mean, and Kai Kara France knows what a opportunity this is. So he's a well-schooled fighter too. This is this is a big crossroads kind of fight for Garbrandt. So uh, be on the lookout for this one. I, like I said, I lean Garbrandt, but 
That guy's also kind of burned me as far as picking him a lot. And kicking off the main card, Holly and Paiva and Sean O'Malley. Um, the Paiva. Not a three-fight winning streak. Um, I think he's going to fight in a way that too much accommodates what Sean O'Malley is good at. Now, he might be durable enough to make it work either way. But O'Malley likes to fight from distance. He's got power. Um, he's... His legs are still a little bit frail. I mean, he's overcome. He's kind of gotten over the, the rep that Marlon Vera put on him, but I think that's still a question. I think he's, he still has not faced anything like a legitimate wrestler uh, who could really kind of put him on his back and make him unhappy. So Paiva might try that. I'm, I'm still going to lean towards O'Malley here, but uh, there's still just so many questions around O'Malley's ability. Like, He's looked really good against a certain level of opposition. And, look, the loss to Cheeto Vera has aged rather well, actually, given what Vera's doing lately. And some of his argument I get. His argument is essentially, I get paid the same whether I fight a tomato can or a contender, so why would I risk fighting a contender? Uh, and look, man, I respect the logic there. You know, if you... he's not, And he's not wrong. You know, he's he's absolutely not wrong about that. His, your contract's the same. But it does leave some open some questions about his abilities and how they rank up and how they match up to a certain level of opposition. Paiva's better than a lot of the guys he's just crushed. He's also not pretty clearly not as good as uh, Marlon Vera. So uh, I lean O'Malley still, but... Eh, there's just so many unknowns with that guy. So that's your pay-per-view main card. As for the rest of these fights, uh, let's have a look here. Uh, Josh Emmett and Dan Ige at featherweight. Pretty big, pretty big spot for Dan Ige. Uh, Emmett's on a three-fight winning streak. Finished two of those. Dude hasn't lost, and he's only lost twice in his career. Once was a split decision to Desmond Green. I thought he lost that fight. Then Jeremy Stevens destroyed him back in 2018. Broke his face, man. The fact that he rebounded as well as he did was a heck of a thing. Coming off a win over Shane Burgos, it was a good fight. Um, his first fight of the year. Coming off a what injury? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, in the fight with Burgos, his left leg got torn up. I remember that. Uh, that was really bad was really bad <laughs> so hopefully he's all uh he, hopefully he's recovered dan ige by contrast coming off of a loss to chan sung jung he had the loss to calvin cater before that those are both main events i got gavin tucker in between those though um ige's good but hmm. i think emmett's power punching is going to be a bit of a problem for him yeah, yeah, I'm going to lean towards Emmett, but I'm not going to be shocked if if uh, Ige wins. Uh, speaking of the guy I almost mentioned there, bantamweight fight. Dominic Cruz and Pedro Munoz. It's a really good fight, actually. Um, Pedro Munoz, just a tank. I mean, you can't stop this guy. His only losses are by decision. Uh, some of them, he... I Look, I thought he... I thought he... Um, I think he beat John Dodson. Ah, I don't... 
I remember not agreeing with that decision. Hmm. I'd have to double check that. Uh, he's beat. He's beaten Rob Font. He beat Cody Garbrandt. I thought he beat Frankie Edgar. Um, I can't remember what it was about UFC 222 that I disagreed with. Something about that sticking in my head. It might have just been some of the conversations we had around it. But uh, the Edgar fight, I thought, I thought Munoz won that fight. Straight up. Did not agree with scoring that. Lost the Aldo fight pretty cleanly. <laughs> and when he lost to Sterling, that was clean. Like, he's had clear losses, but they're few. He's got powerful leg kicks. He's got good hands. Uh, he's a tough, tough out. On the other side, we have Dominic Cruz, who is an all-time great. Uh, I... <sighs> Coming off a win over Casey Kenny, I didn't really see the logic in scoring that for Kenny necessarily. Um, and someone did. It was a split decision. <sighs> Munoz is going to have a hard time corralling Cruz. To the extent that he's able to do so, he will find success. Uh, because he's a harder puncher than Cruz, and I think he's got slightly better punching technique. Uh, I don't know how much success Cruz will have trying to wrestle him on occasion, and Cruz does use his wrestling effectively to win rounds. Um, I'm going to lean towards Cruz. Munoz has struggled with very mobile fighters in the past. Uh, consistently. Even some fights he's won against mobile guys. It's been a problem for him. Uh, Cru Look, the injuries and the miles might be catching up to Cruz, and he might be on his way out, but... I'm going to lean towards him here and just be prepared to, you know, be a little bit heartbroken if he loses. <laughs> uh, heavyweights, Augusto Sakai and Tai Tuivasa. No one cares. Um, I shouldn't say that. People like Tai Tuivasa. I don't know why, but they do. He's on a three-fight winning streak. He's a sloppy brawler who just exists in the middle of the pack below the ranked opposition, below the ranked guys. Sakai's a fighter that's demonstrated some ability. He was ranked at one point. He might still be ranked. But he's on a two-fight losing streak and kind of needs to figure some crap out. Mostly related to his output. Um, he was just outworked pretty consistently by Alistair Overeem. Stopped by Jarzinho Rose. Well, and then, Over uh, then Overeem finished him, actually. In the was he winning that fight before the finish? I can't remember. Uh, a lot of fights. A lot of fights to try and keep, stra keep straight. I'm going to pick Sakai here, but if he hasn't sorted himself out, Tuivasa can finish anybody, pretty much, if he catches you just right. Let's see, and kicking off the next, uh, this portion of the prelims at middleweight, Jordan Wright and Bruno Silva. Um, it's not a great fight. Wright is 2-1 in the UFC, wins over Ike Villanueva and Jamie Pickett with a loss... Um, uh, with a loss to Joaquin Buckley sandwiched between those. And Bruno Silva. Quick look at him. I can't remember off the top of my head. What his record is. Is that if I get moved or something? I'm not listed here. 
Ah, oh, there it is. Sorry, took a minute to find it. Um, Silva's 21 and 6. He's fought in the UFC. Um, his record, please. Tapology. Uh, two wins in the UFC. Wellington Terman and Andrew Sanchez. I remember the Sanchez win. I vaguely recall the Terman win. Yeah, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick Silva. Um, might be again. I might be wrong about that, but I'm gonna lean towards Silva here. As for the early prelims, there's a bunch of them. But Andre Muniz will fight Eric Anders. Kind of surprised these two are still on the roster. Well, I shouldn't say that about Muniz. Muniz is 3-0 in the UFC. Uh, with wins over Antonio Ahoyo, Bartos Fabinski, and Jacques Hanolo Sosa. He broke Sosa's arm. Uh, nasty submission. Nasty. You could hear the arm break. That, that, was, that was bad. Uh, whereas Anders... Uh, he's over. He's kind of on the other side of his big losing streak. Um, he's coming off a win over Darren Stewart. He had a win. He his previous fight with Stewart was a no contest. He was pretty well winning that fight before he made the before he fouled him. Uh, lost to Christoph Yatko before that. Uh, beat Gerald Mershart and Vinicius Mojea. Um, look, I'm gonna pick Muniz. I think Muniz is the better fighter, but. Uh, Anders might have enough power to give him problems. Let's see, women's flyweight, Aaron Blanchfield and Miranda Maverick. Blanchfield had a successful UFC debut back in September. Yeah, I don't have a reason to pick against Maverick here. Uh, Maverick coming off of a split decision loss to Macy Barber. I kind of thought she should have won that. Uh, there's a little bit of homerism that goes on for Barber. Just a bit, as far as the UFC goes. Uh, so, I'm going to pick Maverick here. Let's see, flyweight Alex Perez and Matt Schnell. That's a good fight. I think this is, uh, is going to fly under everyone's radar, but that's a pretty good fight. Perez coming off of his failed bid for the uh, flyweight title at UFC 255. Been out for over a year. That happened. Um, supposed to fight Oscar Askarov. Oscar got injured. Supposed to fight Schnell in August. Was moved, then was moved again. Huh. They've just kind of been... They've kind of been postponing that a lot, yeah. Uh, but point being, Perez is, a, is pretty darn good, and so is Schnell. Um, Schnell coming off of a loss to Jose Uh That was up at bantamweight, and Bontarine still missed weight? Good grief. I'm going to pick Perez here. Uh, I think he might still be able to fa factor into the title picture somewhere. But that's a pretty good fight. Featherweight, Ryan Hall. Ah, uh, the wizard. Fresh off of his second ever loss in mixed martial arts when he was knocked up by Ilya Teporia. Uh, he will be fighting Derek Minner. Minner got finished by Elkins. Minner might overvalue his grappling relative to Hall's here. I'm going to pick Ryan Hall. Um, yeah. Bantamweight, Randy Costa and Tony Kelly. Pretty easy pick for Costa, who's, uh, two and two in the UFC, but his fight with Adrian Yanez was a pretty darn good one for as long as it lasted. Costa's, he's not fully a one-round wonder, but actually, yeah, he kind of is. 
Sorry, his, o his only losses are to Brandon Davis and Adrian Yanez, both of which came in the second round. And he had good, he looked good in the first round of both of those fights, so. Uh, I think he'll probably overwhelm Tony Kelly here. Um, Kelly's who I remember him being. Yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, picking, uh, picking Costa there. And kicking off everything, women's flyweight Jillian Robertson and Priscilla Cachuea. To the shock of no one, I will be picking... Um, I'm not picking Priscilla Cachuea. I'm picking Jillian Robertson. Cachuea's won her last couple of fights. Uh, she beat Shauna Dobson, who probably shouldn't be in the UFC. And she beat Gina Mazzani after Mazzani gassed hard. Um... Uh, she was, uh, Mazzani was way too committed to the wrestling in the first round and gassed herself out, and then Kashway uh, took advantage of that in the second. But Robertson is a better fighter. She's on a two-fight skid. Uh, that's somewhat mitigated by those coming against Tyla Santos, who's a rising contender, and Maverick, who's a just a better prospect. So I'm going to pick Robertson here, but... Uh, look, Cachuea is not a good fighter, but she's durable enough to make some women exhaust themselves. So, uh, who knows? Cachuea is not a good fighter. Let her success be, uh, uh, inspire those of you who think you have to be good, you know, to find success in the UFC. You just have to be Homer Simpson sometimes, and that's kind of all she is. Uh, all right, that's the card. Again, 15 fights. Could be in for a long one, folks. But Saturday, in the MMA zone of 411mania.com, I will be covering this live. You can get my live play-by-play -play action. So please do come by, say hello. I always appreciate everything that you guys are able to do as far as supporting the show like that. All right, let's move on to the news, such as it is, because we do have some. Uh, Kevin Lee has been released by the UFC. Little bit surprising, also also a little bit not. Um, look, Kevin Lee has a wealth of ability. He really does. But uh, I don't mean to be unkind when I say this. There's a couple of things that I think hampered him. One, let's be clear about this. He's one of these guys, and there's a few of them in the UFC, who are essentially fighting without a real division. He would be the poster boy for 165. Uh, him and Rafael Dos Anjos, actually. And a few other guys. I mean, Khabib would have been very successful at 165. There's some smaller welterweights. Uh, unfortunately... He wasn't... His style relied a lot on physicality that didn't quite translate at welterweight. And the cut to 155 was just too much for his body to sustain. Uh, which, it, it just sucks. Like, there's no other way around that. The UFC's stubbornness around some of their weight, dis weight class distinctions remains just something that has screwed some... It just screws some fighters over. There's no other way to say that. That said... I mean, this is where I need to try and not be unkind here. I don't think Kevin Lee... Um, make another comparison. There are certain fighters who 
have coaches that they vibe with. And when that, when they lose that, for whatever reason, they're never quite the same. There's a bunch of guys we can point to as far as this goes, but let me give you a few examples. Um, frankly, I don't think Cody Garbrandt's been the same since uh, he stopped being coached by Justin Buckles. Uh, I think Buckles really understood him, was really able to kind of communicate with him, game plan with him, help him stick to things in a way that um, whoever's in charge at uh, whoever was in charge of Team Alpha Male after him just couldn't do. And I know uh, Garbrandt's done a little bit of camp moving around since, but he's still trying to... He just hasn't been the same since that coaching loss. Mark Hominick was never the same after the loss of... Oh, God, who was his coach? Um, crap, I'm blank. Sean Tompkins. Sean Tompkins? I'm going to confirm that because I don't want to be wrong about this. Uh, yeah, Sean Tompkins. Okay. Took me a minute to remember his name. Uh, who passed away? You know, Tompkins passed away. He was only 37. Um, terrible. That's just too young for anybody. Uh, he and Hominick never, his career never quite recovered from that. And when it comes to Kevin Lee... Uh, I think the death of Robert Fallis, uh, he's never quite recovered from that. I mean, uh, and what happened to Fallis, Fallis, for those of you who may not necessarily remember, uh, committed suicide in 2017. I think Fallis got, uh, Kevin Lee and could communicate with him and really help him game plan and, and could... Just being able to communicate with fighters is a big part of what you do as a coach. And you have to be able to, and when I, again, when I say communicate, it's not just talk. You have to be able to get them to understand. Sometimes it's technical concepts. Sometimes it's game planning. Sometimes it's just being able to be a voice that they trust and that they understand in the midst of chaos. And I don't think he's had that. And I think... The loss of that relationship, uh, I think that really set him back career-wise. I don't mean to trivialize the loss of a man to his family and friends. I, I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say, but I think that really hampered his growth. And I don't think he's found someone. I mean, he still got. He still trains out of Extreme Couture. I think he also kind of moonlights with uh, Faraz Sahabi. Like, he's still got good coaches around him. I don't think he needs... I mean, any time he hit a real skid, there was always a question. Like, this guy's got so much ability. He's got such a great frame. He's got a stupidly long reach. He's got almost like 80... He's got like an 80-inch reach. And for lightweight, or for welterweight for that matter, that's huge. You know, he's uh, he's got this great wrestling ability. And he does. His back-taking and back-control is impressive. His ground-and-pound's brutal. Uh, he's got a great jab. And he's got the ability to finish people. Like, there's all this positive stuff about him. And th- so there's always the question whenever he f- whenever he would come up short. Like, sometimes it was obvious. Okay, the, the Tony Ferguson thing. He gassed out. He had staff. And Tony Ferguson was on his maniacal run of just carving people up like turkeys. But... I don't I don't think the I don't think he needs to move in the sense that sometimes fighters are very clearly with 
camps that are not world-class or coaches that are not world-class. That's not the problem here. I don't think he has that voice that he can hear and trust. And if you don't have that, uh, the whole thing just kind of falls apart. So I'm not saying he'll never get back to the UFC. He might. I mean, I, I think the joke that I saw after this was, well, this is the worst news that Patricky Pitbull could have. Uh, Patricky just became the lightweight champion over in Bellator, and I would favor Kevin Lee over him pretty handily. So, assuming he lands in Bellator, he might land somewhere else. Who knows? But he's... Uh, he might find his way back to the UFC. He might not. But that's... Uh, the UFC released a few other people, but he was kind of the big one that stood out. Uh, I think the last thing I want to touch on here, there was a bit of matchmaking that was kind of revealed. Uh, I don't think this has been signed yet, but I know it's in the works. Uh, Jan Blahovich is looking to rebound from his title loss to Glover Teixeira. And they're looking at making him and Alexander Rakic for the first part of 2022. Uh, the first part of the new year is starting to fill up, which isn't not terribly surprising around this time of the year. But, uh, I mean, December, or sorry, January, they're only having two events in January. They're having one fight night and one pay-per-view. And I said the pay-per-view is UFC 270, and Ngannou versus Gone is, uh, you gotta watch that one. You have got to watch that one. Uh, but we don't have a main event for the February 5th card. We have most of a card here. Um, oh, no, sorry. They they did. I think they're trying to, they're gonna do Sean Strickland and Jack Hermanson in the main event of that card. Also on that card, Shavkat Rachmanov and Carlston Harris. Rachmanov's a good fighter, man. That guy's really good. Sam Alvey still on the roster. <laughs> I my if there were a sound to replicate my enthusiasm for Sam Alvey's continued presence on the UFC uh, broadcast, it would be that of a wet fart. Um, so that one, that one just barely got its main event. Uh, 271 is the one they're trying to look at. Uh, is that the one they're trying to, no, I don't think that's the one they're look, uh, that might be the one they're looking at for, um, uh, Adesanya and Whitaker, either that or, yeah, that's the one that they're looking at for that. Uh, some of the stuff in February, again, it's kind of starting to take shape. Um, yeah, the rest of the February cards, they still need some work, but uh, we should get a lot. We'll probably get some more announcements about those uh, on the UFC 269 broadcast. The UFC kind of likes to promote the like their big chunk of uh, fights dropped for those kind of events. Or UFC 270, one of those two. But 270 seems a bit too far out for some of the events, especially some of the events in February. Like They have a busy February, man. Uh, yeah, there's four events in February, but so we're getting to that point when the UFC is going to announce, you know, more dates and whatnot. So be on the lookout for that. But uh, Blahovich and Rakic, uh, that's that's not an easy bounce back for Blahovich. It's a big step up for Rakic. Uh, winner of that probably gets a title fight. We've got Prohachka and Teixeira on deck, uh, presumably. Easily, easily, the winner of that probably gets a turnaround for a title shot. If Rakic wins, that would more than qualify him for it. If Blahovich wins, you could do a rematch with Teixeira or a fight with Prohachka. Easily justifiable. Uh, that's a fight to pay attention to. All right, I think that's the end of the news, so I'm going to check Twitter one more time. And if 
nothing crazy is broken. We will get out of here after some plugs. All right, nope. So let's get into plugs. Uh, by the time you listen to this, in all probability, Mark Radlich and I will have recorded watch along, uh, a watch along podcast for the main event of Gervonta Davis and Isak Cruz. That's going on to, uh, as I, uh, the fact that card is going on as I record this. Wanted to get this done before the boxing event. So I apologize for not talking about it here. Might talk about it next week. We'll see. 269 is probably going to suck up a lot of the oxygen for the show, though. So, But Mark and I will be talking about that. So if you're interested, you can find that over on the W2M network. That's where a lot of my other podcasting takes place. Speaking of that, this last week, I was involved in three different podcasts. Uh, on Monday, there was a Damn You Hollywood for Encanto, the latest Disney feature. Myself, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Haina discussed it. So, uh, if you if you type Damn You Hollywood into your podcast search engine, you're probably going to find our show. Uh, Tuesday, there was a Damn You Hollywood for Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Myself, Mark Radlich, and Jason Teasley, we were not kind to that show, but we were as kind as that movie deserved. And Wednesday, perhaps more relevant for you listeners of this podcast... Mark Radlich and I got together to do a triple feature of MMA-themed movies. We talked Bruised, the Halle Berry directorial feature on Netflix, Born a Champion, the love letter to jiu-jitsu starring Sean Patrick Flannery, and from 10 years ago, Warriors starring Tom Hardy, uh, Joel Edgerton, and uh, Nick Nolte. So you can listen to Mark and I talk about those three movies, the good, the bad, the otherwise. Uh, this week, there will be a TV party on Tuesday for Cowboy Bebop, the live-action Netflix adaptation. And boy, that's going to be Mark, myself, I believe, Alexis Haina and Ronnie Adams. Some configuration like that. Um, I don't have a lot good to say about that show, but some of the others do. So tune in and we will kick that particular ball around. Uh, I think that's my only other podcast this week. I have some stuff re-airing, but nobody cares. Yeah, so in, ad- so in addition to my podcasting duties, my regular spate of coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday over in the Wrestling Zone of 411mania.com, MLW's Fusion television show on Wednesday, and WWE SmackDown on Fridays. You can list- read my reports for all of those in the Wrestling Zone of 411mania.com, and the SmackDown... Th- Coverage is not just a report that I am the one in charge of the live play-by-play for that particular show. This last episode was not especially good. I was pretty poor, in fact, in a lot of ways. I might have even been generous with my rating. Just throwing that out there. So, yeah, that's what I'll be doing this week. And then, of course, sun, uh, Saturday, UFC 269. Next Sunday, we'll review UFC 269. And I believe... Let's see, are we previewing... 11th. Yes, we are previewing UFC on ESPN plus 57, Lewis versus Dawkus. That event headlined by Derek, by heavyweights Derek Lewis and Chris Dawkus. This is on that card. Uh, Stephen Thompson and Bilal Muhammad's on that card. That's not a bad. That's a pretty good fight. Rafael Austin Sow and Ricky Simone. Cub Swanson and Darren Elkins. It's an odd fight an odd fight. Anyway, we'll have a full preview of that next week, so I hope you will be back. Until then, thank you all again very, very much for listening and for all of your support that you've given the show. 
It means the world to me to see the show grow the way it did over the last handful of weeks. So I thank you all very much. I've been doing this for a long time, and I I don't talk numbers here very often because I'm aware that I'm a small fish in the ocean. But uh, seeing this thing finally grow, I shouldn't say finally, grow a bit and then grow in kind of the way that it did relative to the base numbers the last couple of weeks uh, means a lot to me. I put a lot of effort into this, and I uh, I thank you all very, very much for it. And I hope to continue doing this for quite some time to come. So, thank you. Per usual, stay safe out there. And until next time, be well, be safe, and behave.